Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha in this book series titled The Words of the Buddha. We're in volume 11, The Realms of Existence, and we're going to be studying chapters 61 through 70. And if this is your first time joining us, no worries because we're going to actually be displaying the chapters on the screen and a student will be reading each chapter and then I'll share teachings about that chapter and open up to any questions that you guys might have related to the chapter. When we study the words of the Buddha, then we understand what did he actually teach and what he didn't teach. So by learning and practicing with the words of the Buddha, then you can understand the path to enlightenment more deeply. We happen to be in this book, The Realms of Existence, where right now we're studying chapters related to the human realm, and we're also going to be moving into the heavenly realm today as well. We're going to be studying a few chapters from the heavenly realm. So I'd like to welcome all of you, whether you've joined us for the first time or you've been joining us regularly. The way that we start this class is we start with a brief meditation just to prepare the mind for the class, because by doing a little bit of meditation, it helps to prepare the mind. It helps to allow you to retain the teachings for a bit longer, and then you can actually apply them in daily life. As you've remembered them, then you can actually apply them in daily life. So I'd like to invite all of you to join for meditation. I'll just do some brief guidance to just kind of ease us into meditation and then guide you for a little bit and then really just kind of let you do the meditation on your own before we come out of meditation and start the class. So if you'd like to take a seated position, either in a chair or on the floor, just make your lower body comfortable and your hands and arms comfortable in the lap. And then your upper body should be nice and erect. This helps to keep the mind attentive and alert during the meditation. Next, just close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Experiencing the full breath, just breathing in through the nose, gradually breathing in, and then gradually breathing out through the nose. I'm gonna do some chants to ease us into meditation. You're welcome to join in with the chants. And then afterwards, I'll come back with some guidance to help you in your meditation. อาระหังสัมมาสัมพุทโธมะเกวะโพตังมะเกวะนังอภิวาเตยามิ
Establishing a nice gradual breath, breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Once you get the breath established, fixate the mind on the breath, the sound of the breath, or sensation of air moving into the nose. This is the present moment. Fixate the mind on the breath, the present moment. Breathing in and out. Whenever the mind is not on the breath, cut that off and let it go and come back to the breath. Continue to focus on the breath throughout the entire meditation. Wherever you notice that the mind is off the breath, Cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. I'm going to be quiet now and let you do this work to focus on the breath. Breathing in and out. 
meditation, go ahead and move towards our class of sharing chapters 61 through 70 in today's class. We have our moderator, Rick, who's going to be kind of facilitating the readers in Zoom and any questions that come in. So we'll go ahead and turn things over to all of you to go ahead and read each chapter. Afterwards, I'll share teachings and then we'll open up to any questions. And the way that you ask questions is you put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and then the moderators will read your question in the class. But if you're in Zoom and you would like to electronically raise your hand, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So I'll just turn things over to all of you guys. Okay, I'll begin with chapter 61, Cause of Ill Will. By what fetters, sir, are beings bound? Gods, humans, asuras, nagas, 
gandavas, and whatever other kinds there may be, whereby, although they aspire to live without hate, harming, hostility, or ill will, and in peace, they yet live in hate, harming one another, hostile, when with ill will. Ruler of the gods, it is the bonds of jealousy and material gain that bind beings so that, though they aspire to live without hate, harming, hostility, or ill will, and in peace, yet they yet live in hate, harming one another, hostile, and with ill will. But sir, what gives rise to jealousy and, and material gain? What is their origin? How are they born? How do they arise? Owing to the presence of what do, owing to the presence of what do they arise, owing to the absence of what do they not arise? Jealousy and material gain, Lord of the gods, take rise from happiness and sadness. This is their origin. This is how they are born. How they arise. When they are present, they arise. When these are absent, they do not arise. But sir. What gives rise to being happy and sad? What is their origin? How are they born? How do they arise? Owing to the presence of what they do, of what do they arise? Owing to the absence of what do they not arise? They arise, Lord of the gods, from craving and desire. Due to the presence of craving and desire, they arise. Due to the absence of craving and desire, they do not arise. All right, thank you, Rick. So here, this is a you know classic teaching of Gautama Buddha, where he's showing the cause and effect and helping the student to understand what leads to one thing to another. And with a student asking a question, oftentimes they're starting out on the peripheral. What they're seeing here is they're seeing the ill will, the hostility, the harming, so forth. And then the Buddha moves in and says, okay, it's jealousy and material gain. And then, okay, with that, then it goes in deeper and deeper and deeper until ultimately the Buddha gets to the root cause of what's causing this ill will and this hostility. And that's craving desire, which is what we talk about in the group learning program. But then the Buddha is explaining the other layers here with the jealousy and material gain and the happiness and the sadness and so forth. So this is just a you know question and answer, question, answer, question, answer, ultimately showing that ill will and this hostility and this hate and this anger, this bitterness. This is all coming from craving, desire, attachment. That's what's allowing that to arise. When we get rid of craving, desire, attachment, wants and expectations, then there's no anger, hatred, or ill will that would arise. So these things are all part of the three poisons, the three unwholesome roots or the three fires, that when we eliminate craving, then it eliminates the ill will and the, the hostility. But in order to do that, we need to eliminate the ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. And this is the cycle that the mind is stuck in, is it keeps having this ignorance, this unknowing of true reality. So it keeps craving. And when it craves, then it experiences hatred or anger or ill will. And all that is happening because of the ignorance. So you can unwind and get unbound. The Buddha is talking here about being bound, being bound to the cycle of rebirth. You can eliminate that through 
injecting wisdom into the mind by learning, reflecting, and practicing the teachings, you independently verify them and you see the truth. And this wisdom then leads to helping you to understand how to train the mind to eliminate craving and how to eliminate the anger. And all of this is helping to eliminate the ignorance because you're gaining the wisdom of how to actively train the mind to get to the end of discontentedness. And by getting to the point where you've eliminated discontentedness, you've also eliminated the cycle of rebirth. Once the mind is enlightened, you'll experience peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy for the rest of this life. And then there's no longer any rebirth because craving, not only does it cause discontentedness, it causes rebirth as well. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? It doesn't look like we have um, any questions at this time. All right. So we'll move to chapter 62. Okay. Let's move to Miranda who will read chapter 62 for us. Yes. Thank you. One frightened and terrified of death. One not frightened and terrified of death. Brahman, there are those subject to death that are frightened and terrified of death. But there are also those subject to death that are not frightened and terrified of death. And Brahman, who are those subject to death that are frightened and terrified of death? Here, someone is not free of lust, desire, wants, thirst, passion, and craving for sensual pleasures. When he incurs a severe and debilitating illness, he thinks, oh, the sensual pleasures dear to me will leave me, and I will have to leave those sensual pleasures. He sorrows, suffers, and grieves. He cries, beating his breast, and becomes confused. This is one subject to death who is frightened and terrified of death. Again, someone is not free of lust, desire, wants, thirst, passion, and craving for the body. When he incurs a severe and debilitating illness, he thinks, oh, this body dear to me will leave me, and I will have to leave this body. He sorrows, suffers, and grieves. He cries, beating his breast, and becomes confused. This, too, is one subject to death who is frightened and terrified of death. Again, someone has not done what is good and wholesome, or made a shelter for himself, but he has done what is evil, cruel, and defiled, or unwholesome. When he incurs a severe and debilitating illness, he thinks, oh, I have not done anything good and wholesome, nor have I made a shelter for myself, but I have done what is evil, cruel, and defiled. When I pass on, I will meet the appropriate fate. He sorrows, suffers, and grieves. He cries, beating his breast, and becomes confused. This, too, is one subject to death who is frightened and terrified of death. Again, someone here is uncertain, doubtful, and unclear about the good and wholesome teachings. <clears throat> when he incurs a severe and debilitating illness, he thinks, Oh, I am uncertain, doubtful, and unclear about the good, wholesome teachings. He sorrows, suffers, and grieves. He cries, beating his breast, and becomes confused. This, too, is one subject to death who is frightened and terrified of death. These are four subject to death that are frightened and terrified of death. And Brahman, who are those subject to death that are not frightened and terrified of death? Here, someone is free of lust, desire, wants, thirst, passion, and craving for sensual pleasures. When he incurs a severe and debilitating illness, he does not think, oh, the sensual pleasures dear to me will leave me, and I will have to leave those sensual pleasures. 
He does not sorrow, suffer, and grieve. He does not cry, beating his breast, and become confused. This is one subject to death who is not frightened and terrified of death. Again, someone is free of lust, desire, wants, thirst, passion, and craving for the body. When he incurs a severe and debilitating illness, he does not think, Oh, this body dear to me will leave me, and I will have to leave this body. He does not sorrow, suffer, and grieve. He does not cry, beating his breast, and become confused. This, too, is one subject to death who is not frightened and terrified of death. Again, someone who has not done what is evil, cruel, and defiled, unwholesome, but has done what is good and wholesome and made a shelter for himself. When he incurs a severe and debilitating illness, he thinks, Indeed, I have not done anything evil, cruel, and defiled, but I have done what is good and wholesome and made a shelter for myself. When I pass on, I will meet the appropriate fate. He does not sorrow, suffer, and grieve. He does not cry, beating his breast, and become confused. This, too, is one subject to death who is not frightened and terrified of death. Again, someone is certain, doubt-free, and clear about the good, wholesome teachings. When he incurs a severe and debilitating illness, he thinks, I am certain, doubt-free, and clear about the good, wholesome teachings. He does not sorrow, suffer, and grieve. He does not cry, beating his breast, and become confused. This, too, is one subject to death who is not frightened and terrified of death. These Brahman are four subject to death that are not frightened and terrified of death. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here the Buddha is talking about essentially why one experiences being afraid of death and one who's not afraid of death. And he's connecting it to his teachings because as you train the mind to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, and other aspects of the mind, you can get to a point where you're no longer afraid of death. And he's explaining to you essentially the situation of where one is afraid of death and where one isn't afraid of death. And this first one that he's talking about is he's talking about someone who has central desire. In the 10 fetters, which are the 10 pollutions of mind that need to be eliminated in order to experience enlightenment, the fourth fetter is central desire. This is where the mind has craving, desire, attachment, mental longing, and strong eagerness through the six sense bases of the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the bodily contact, and the mind. If there's craving for central pleasures, i.e. their central desire, then when it becomes time that someone is ill and close to death, then they're going to be afraid of dying because they're not going to want to leave behind their material possessions, for example, or their relationships, or all the things that their mind is holding on to, maybe their clothes or their money or things like this. People will grieve and sorrow and suffer when it's time to die because they're still holding on to things in this material world. They're not ready to leave yet. So that's the first one that he's talking about here. The second one is he's talking about someone who's holding on to this physical body. And if you're holding on to this physical body, not understanding impermanence, then there's going to be a lot of sorrow and crying at the time of death. There's going to be grieving because you don't want to leave this body. You want to stay here. You still are holding on to this world. 
Then the next one that he talks about is someone who's done unwholesome things, someone who doesn't understand the good, wholesome teachings and understanding what is kind of right from wrong, so to speak, or what is wholesome and unwholesome. If someone's out there doing all kinds of unwholesome things, when it's time to die, they're confused, they're sorrowful, they're grieving, they're suffering because they don't know what's next and they're very much afraid. Are they going to hell or you know what's going to happen to them? People, even if they don't understand hell, the animal realm, and the afflicted spirit realm, a lot of people understand about hell. And if you've done a lot of harmful things in the world, then someone would be afraid of death because they know they've done these harmful things and they're not sure about what their next destination is after death. So then he goes on and saying, okay, if someone is doubtful or uncertain or unclear about these teachings, then also they're going to be frightened at the time of death. Because if you're unsure about what the realms of existence are, you're unsure whether you've eliminated the 10 fetters or not, you don't know whether or not the mind is enlightened, if there's going to be rebirth or what's after this life. If you're unsure about all these things and you're doubtful about these teachings because you haven't done enough work to train the mind and see the results for yourself that they are indeed working to improve the condition of the mind, then you're going to be confused at the time of death and not know what's going to happen next. But if somebody is in that first, second, third, or fourth stage of enlightenment, they're going to know with 100% certainty they will have eliminated doubt and they will know that these good wholesome teachings are leading exactly where the Buddha says they do to enlightenment because they can see the quality of the mind and the quality of their life improving. So even if somebody's a stream enterer or they're a once returner or non-returner, you can actually get to the point where you've potentially eliminated the fear of death and you've definitely eliminated doubt about the teachings by that point. So you can get to that point and then you won't actually fear death because you'll know that you're going to be reborn back into the human realm or you're going to be reborn into the heavenly realm or if you're enlightened you know that you're not going to be reborn at all so you don't die confused you know exactly what's going to happen because you see the clarity of these teachings improving the condition of the mind so you have no doubt that you know the truth about what's going to occur upon death depending on what stage of enlightenment you're in. So he goes in and he says, okay, if there is no central desire, then there's not going to be this fear of death because you're not going to be holding on to material possessions and the pleasures of this central world. If you're not clinging and craving and holding on to this body, then you're not going to have fear at the time of death. If you've done wholesome things for an extended period of time, if you've cleaned up your life practice and you've been practicing the Eightfold Path for an extended period of time, you know that you've extinguished all your unwholesome gamma because no longer are unwholesome things happening in your life. You've been learning and practicing and bringing your practice up to the full path more and more that you see that there's nothing unwholesome happening in your life because you're only making wise decisions. So you don't have any fear at the time of death because nothing but wholesomeness has been happening for you. The mind is enlightened at that point and you know that when you die from this life, that there's nothing bad that's going to happen to you because there's nothing bad happening to you right now in this life because you've cultivated so much wisdom and you are practicing in such a way that 
only wholesome things are happening for you. So if only wholesome things are happening for you now in this life, then when it's time to die, you know that there's nothing bad that's going to happen to you. The Buddha doesn't explain once you die as an enlightened being what happens next. He left that as an undeclared teaching. But anybody who is enlightened would understand that nothing unwholesome is happening to them for an extended period of time. So once they die, they know that nothing unwholesome is going to happen to them. They've already moved through all those stages of enlightenment that they know that they're no longer going to be reborn in hell, the animal realm, the afflicted spirit realm. And if the mind's enlightened, they know that they're not even going to be reborn in the heavenly realm. They're not going to be reborn at all. So somebody who is cultivating wholesome conduct then they're not confused at the time of death. They're not sorrowful or suffering because they know that they've been doing all wholesome things. And then the very last one that the Buddha talks about here is being doubt-free, is if you have no doubt about these teachings because you've seen the improvement to the condition of the mind and you may be in that first, second, third, or fourth stage of enlightenment, then you have no doubt about what's going to be happening if you're in that first second or third stage of enlightenment you know exactly what's going to be happening should you die in one of those stages of enlightenment and if the mind is enlightened you know that there's not going to be any rebirth so there's no sorrowful there's no grieving you've already let go of all this material world you're not holding on to anything what questions do you guys have on this chapter it appears that we don't have any questions at this time, sir. All right. I just would like to show you guys as we move on, as I created this little summary here in the explanation to help you guys see what leads to fear of death and then what leads to not having fear of death. I've just kind of consolidated it in a very small area. So this is one of the things you can benefit from if you download the books or you get a printed copy. You'll be able to see these explanations and kind of a... In this particular case, I've kind of collapsed what the Buddha was saying into a more condensed version that you can absorb it that way. So we'll go to the next chapter, which is chapter 63. Okay. Rare that one obtains the human state. Monks, suppose that this great earth had become one mass of water and a man would throw a ring with a single hole upon it. An easterly wind would drive it westward, a westerly wind would drive it eastward, a northerly wind would drive it southward, a southerly wind would drive it northward. There was a blind turtle which would come to the surface once every hundred years. What do you think, monks? Would that blind turtle coming to the surface once every hundred years insert its neck into that ring with a single hole? It would be rare, venerable sir, that the blind turtle coming to surface once every hundred years would insert its neck into that ring with a single hole. So too, monks, it is rare that one obtains the human state, rare that it's a Tathagata, an Arahant, a perfectly enlightened one, arises in the world, rare that the teachings and discipline proclaimed by the Tathagata shines in the world. You have obtained that human state, monks. A Tathagata, an Arahant, a perfectly enlightened one, has arisen in the world. The teachings and discipline proclaimed by the Tathagata shines in the world. Therefore, monks, an effort should be made to understand this is discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the cause of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand 
This is the elimination of discontentedness. And efforts should be made to understand this is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. All right. Thank you, Rick. So here the Buddha is explaining how rare the human existence is. And remember, we're studying chapters now about the human realm. And he's talking to his students and sharing just how extremely rare it is to obtain a human birth, first of all, but to obtain a human birth when there's an actual fully perfectly enlightened Buddha, a Tathagata that exists in the world. And because a Tathagata exists in the world, the teachings are shining in the world, which means this is the ideal time to attain enlightenment. Because the human birth is the ideal time to attain enlightenment because in the human realm, we have all three feelings, pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. And we're able to cultivate our mind. We have this very unique aspect of this existence, which allows us to get to enlightenment. And when there's a Buddha that has awakened during your actual lifetime, this is the most ideal time to get to enlightenment as well, because a Buddha is going to have deep and profound wisdom, be able to explain the teachings very clearly and help guide countless people to enlightenment during the lifetime of a Buddha because their teachings are shining in the world because a Buddha has such wisdom that they can talk in very precise, very concise ways, very penetrating wisdom. So those things coming together at the same time is the most ideal time to be born as a human being is when a actual uh, Buddha, a perfectly enlightened one, is awakened in the world. So he's reminding his students of this that this is their time to get to enlightenment. I mean, you would have had to have some amazing gamma to just be reborn as a human being, but to be reborn at the lifetime of a Buddha, this really takes a really good amount of wholesome gamma. And he's saying, okay, an effort should be made to understand the Four Noble Truths. This is what he's pointing to here. This is the Four Noble Truths. This is where you get that breakthrough to understanding what is discontentedness, the cause, the elimination and the path forward, which is the Eightfold Path. And if you can understand the Four Noble Truths, not here, this is just him pointing to it. But if you understand the Four Noble Truths in detail and you can practice them, this is where you can have a real breakthrough to understanding you're causing your own discontentedness and it's craving, desire, attachment that's doing that. And by accepting responsibility for the feelings that you're experiencing, anger and sadness and frustration and others, now you can focus on the real problem because you're establishing right view. When we have wrong view, we think that it's everyone else that's causing us to be angry or frustrated or sad or bored or lonely or other discontent feelings. We think that other people are causing these feelings for us. And this is wrong view. But when we learn the Four Noble Truths and we have that breakthrough, we establish right view where we understand that we're causing it ourselves, And there we can actually fix the real problem. As long as we believe that it's other people that's causing our problems, then we tend to be interested to try to control other people and get other people to do things our way. But when we realize we're causing it ourselves, we can focus on the real problem and then we can actually solve it. And being alive at the time of an actual perfectly enlightened Buddha, that's the most ideal time to have this breakthrough and learn all the other teachings that it takes to get to enlightenment. A student learning directly with a Buddha will actually be able to progress 
very readily in a very you know kind of short time frame so to speak because the wisdom that they're learning is very penetrating and if somebody applies dedication and diligence they can make a real effort to getting to enlightenment and ending this whole cycle of rebirth and ending the discontentedness that they're experiencing in the mind what questions do you guys have on this chapter it looks like miranda has a question sir all right we'll go to miranda then yes thank you rick um so in reading this here this seems like fully understanding and practicing the four noble truths is that the the uh, preliminary step towards reaching not even the first stage of enlightenment but towards reaching that first jhana where the mind is then able to move more easily towards enlightenment sir Yes, to make any kind of real progress on the path to enlightenment, somebody would need to establish right view. Uh, right view and understanding the Four Noble Truths and practicing those, it explains to you the problem, which is discontentedness, the cause, which is craving, desire, attachment, the elimination, which is eliminating craving, desire, attachment, and the path forward, which is the Eightfold Path. Without understanding and practicing the Four Noble Truths, there can't really be any real substantial improvement to get to the jhanas and get to that first stage of enlightenment. So what the Buddha does throughout his teachings is he points to the Four Noble Truths as the, the real starting point of the path to enlightenment. This is why in the group learning program, I spend a lot of time, I kind of teach the, the Four Noble Truths about three, four, five different times throughout the group learning program because it's so important to learn the Four Noble Truths and practice that because that's the real starting point of the path. Without that, uh, everything else builds on top of it. So without that, a person, a practitioner wouldn't really be able to make any substantial progress. Yes, thank you, sir. You're welcome. It looks like there are no other questions at this time, sir. Sure. All right, chapter... 64. Okay, and we'll hand it over to Miranda to read that chapter. Yes, thank you. <clears throat> beings are few who are reborn among human beings or heavenly beings because they have not seen the Four Noble Truths. Then the perfectly enlightened one took up a little bit of soil in his fingernail and addressed the monks thus. What do you think, monks? Which is more? the little bit of soil in my fingernail or the great earth. Venerable sir, the great earth is more. The little bit of soil that the perfectly enlightened one has taken up in his fingernail is insignificant. Compared to the great earth, that little bit of soil is not calculable, does not bear comparison, does not amount even to a fraction. So too monks, those beings are few who, when they pass away as human beings, are reborn among human beings. But those beings are more numerous who, when they pass away as human beings, are reborn in hell, in the animal realm, in the realm of afflicted spirits. For what reason? Because, monks, they have not seen the Four Noble Truths. What for? The Noble Truth of Discontentedness, the Noble Truth of the Cause of Discontentedness, the Noble Truth of the Elimination of Discontentedness, the noble truth of the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. 
Therefore, monks, an effort should be made to understand. This is discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand. This is the cause of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand. This is the elimination of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand. This is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. What do you think, monks? Which is more? The little bit of soil in my fingernail or the great earth? Venerable sir, the great earth is more. The little bit of soil that the perfectly enlightened one has taken up in his fingernail is insignificant. Compared to the great earth, the little bit of soil that the perfectly enlightened one has taken up in his fingernail is not calculable, does not bear comparison, does not amount even to a fraction. So too, monks, those beings are few who, when they pass away as human beings, are reborn among the heavenly beings. But those beings are more numerous who, when they pass away as human beings, are reborn in hell, in the animal realm, in the realm of afflicted spirits. For what reason? Because, monks, they have not seen the four noble truths. What for? The noble truth of discontentedness, the noble truth of the cause of discontentedness, the noble truth of the elimination of discontentedness, the noble truth of the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. Therefore, monks, an effort should be made to understand. This is discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand. This is the cause of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand. This is the elimination of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand. This is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. Thank you, Miranda. This is a really interesting chapter because we've been studying things earlier in the book that explain how humans get reborn into the realm of hell, animal realm, and afflicted spirits. And he's, the Buddha shared various conduct that we can do on a consistent, ongoing, and repeated basis that creates rebirth into the lower realms. Well, here, uh, he's not saying it here, but let me just share this and kind of remind you guys from the group learning program, is that when somebody has attained the first stage of enlightenment as a stream enter, if they die in that first stage of enlightenment, they will be reborn back into the human realm no more than seven times. That's a maximum of seven times. If you die in the second stage of enlightenment, which is a once returner, that person will be reborn back into the human realm one more time and they will attain enlightenment in that next birth. A third stage of enlightenment, a non-returner, they're going to be reborn into the heavenly realm and they're going to attain enlightenment from that realm and no longer come back to the human realm. That's called a non-returner. They're not returning back to the human realm because they've progressed to the third stage of enlightenment. They're going to be reborn in the heavenly realm, which is an ideal, but they will indeed attain enlightenment from that realm. They won't come back to the human realm. And then an arahant, they're not going to be reborn at all. These are the ways that people can move into the human realm, from the human realm back into the human realm, and they can move from the human realm into the heavenly realm. But a being doesn't necessarily have to be in those stages of enlightenment for that to occur. There are beings who can actually be reborn from hell straight into the human realm or from hell straight into the heavenly realm. The Buddha talks about this in other parts of his teachings. It's very rare, but it does occur. 
And the same thing, beings can be reborn from the animal and afflicted spirits realm into the human or heavenly realm as well. But from the heavenly realm, what the Buddha is explaining here is that more than likely where people are going to be reborn is either into hell, animal realm, or afflicted spirits because they haven't seen the Four Noble Truths. They still have wrong view. The Buddha explains that anyone who dies with wrong view is going to be reborn in hell or the animal realm. And then once you're in those realms, that's like a prison and very hard to get out of. So anybody who has not yet established right view, they're going to be reborn into the realm of hell or afflicted spirits. And here, the Buddha is explaining that it's very likely that a human being will be reborn into the lower realms because they don't know these teachings, because they haven't learned and practiced to understand about the wisdom of craving, desire, attachment, about anger, hatred, and ill will, and they haven't worked on cultivating wisdom in order to practice wholesome moral conduct and having mental discipline. So most beings from the human realm are reborn into the lower realms, but eventually they will get back to the human or heavenly realm with additional opportunities to attain enlightenment and with a Buddha arising to share these teachings in the world and permeating in the world more and more, then those beings will have a better and better chance of actually getting to enlightenment and ending the whole cycle of rebirth. But during the lifetime of the Buddha, the teachings didn't really exist in the world. He talks about himself being the discoverer, the declarer, the originator of the path to enlightenment. There's people who talk about Buddhas before Gautama Buddha, but those teachings weren't around by the time Gautama Buddha awakens and arises in the world. So he discusses himself as being the discoverer, the declarer, and the originator of the path to enlightenment. So it's only in that small region of what we call Northeast India in Nepal today where these teachings were really permeating. And then it wasn't until after his death that they really spread throughout the world more and more and more. And then as they did for the first 500 years, they were really strong and vibrant, but then they started to kind of slowly decay based on impermanence and slowly deteriorate. And now we're in this period of time where a new Buddha has arisen in 2017 and has awakened. And now the teachings come back into the world in a more vibrant way that more and more beings can get to enlightenment and experience enlightenment. And then as beings are coming back into the human realm, then these teachings will be permeating in the human realm more readily and more and more beings can get to enlightenment. And we'll see this shrinking down of beings that are in the cycle of rebirth. And all of that is happening because of the Four Noble Truths. That's what the Buddha is pointing to here and explaining that it's the Four Noble Truths that is the real breakthrough and helping somebody understand what's causing discontentedness and how to actually eliminate it because that's what's going to help somebody get to enlightenment and end the whole cycle of rebirth. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It looks like we don't have any questions this time, sir. All right. So let's move to chapter 65. Okay. We are now in the section on heavenly beings. This chapter is entitled, The Three Surpassing Respects of the Heavenly Beings. Monks, in three respects, the heavenly beings surpass the people of Atarakuru and the people of Jambul Dibka. What three? 
One, in heavenly lifespan. Two, in heavenly beauty. And three, in heavenly happiness. In these three respects of the heavenly, the heavenly beings surpass the people of Uttarakuro and the people of Jampudipa. All right. Thank you, Rick. So what these first couple of chapters are going to do is kind of set up and start helping you understand more about the qualities of the heavenly realm. Here, the Buddha is explaining how the heavenly realm has a, a very long lifespan, more so than human beings, because the people of these two areas, they're human beings. So the Buddha is saying that these heavenly beings are surpassing these human beings in these three ways. They have a much longer lifespan than human beings. They have much more beauty and they also have much more happiness because in the heavenly realm, you'll see in different parts of his teachings, they only experience pleasant feelings. They experience discontentedness. Their mind is discontent because it still has craving, desire, attachment, but they only experience pleasant feelings. Those happiness, excitement, thrill, euphoria, that's all they experience. So they oftentimes lack motivation in order to get to enlightenment. They have the ability to get to enlightenment in the heavenly realm, but they oftentimes lack the motivation. So they often are very complacent and they don't necessarily learn and practice in order to get to enlightenment. So heavenly beings are oftentimes reborn back down into the other realms, whether it's the human realm, afflicted spirits, the animal realm, or the realm of hell. So oftentimes people are taught in various traditions that the ultimate goal is to get to heaven and then that's an eternal existence. But this isn't actually true because that completely conflicts with everything we know about the universal truth of impermanence. So when you look around the world and you understand the universal truth of impermanence, then you easily can see that the heavenly existence is not eternal. It's not an eternal existence and it's not just one life either. So there's these multiple lives and if you're reborn into the heavenly realm, you can still attain enlightenment there, but oftentimes beings lack motivation, like I say. They have a very long lifespan, they're very beautiful, and they have all this happiness is what the Buddha is saying in this chapter. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It looks like we don't have any questions at this time, sir. All right, we'll move to chapter 66. Okay, Miranda, would you please read chapter 66 for us? Yes, sir. Uh, by reason of righteous conduct. Master Gotama, what is the cause and condition why some beings here on the dissolution of the body after death reappear in states without basic necessities, in an unhappy destination, in perdition, even in hell? And what is the cause and condition why some beings here on the dissolution of the body after death reappear in a happy destination, even in the heavenly world? Householders, it is by reason of conduct not in accordance with the teachings, by reason of unrighteous conduct, that some beings here on dissolution of the body after death reappear in states without basic necessities, in an unhappy destination, in perdition, even in hell. It is by reason of conduct in accordance with the teachings, by reason of righteous conduct, that some beings here on the dissolution of the body after death reappear in a happy destination, even in the heavenly world. We do not understand the detailed meaning of Master Gautama's spoken words, which he has spoken in brief without explaining the detailed meaning. 
It would be good if Master Gautama would teach us the teachings so that we might understand the detailed meaning of his spoken words. Then, householders, listen and attend closely to what I shall say. Householders, there are three kinds of bodily conduct not in accordance with the teachings, unrighteous conduct. There are four kinds of verbal conduct not in accordance with the teachings, unrighteous conduct. There are three kinds of mental conduct not in accordance with the teachings, unrighteous conduct. Householders, there are three kinds of bodily conduct in accordance with the teachings, righteous conduct. There are four kinds of verbal conduct in accordance with the teachings, righteous conduct. There are three kinds of mental conduct in accordance with the teachings, righteous conduct. The detailed meaning at chapter 14, 10 courses of unwholesome comma, deposited in hell, and chapter 45, 10 courses of unwholesome comma, deposited in heaven of this book. If householders, one who observes conduct in accordance with the teachings, righteous conduct, should have the objective, oh, that on the dissolution of the body, after death, I might reappear in the company of well-to-do nobles. It is possible that on the dissolution of the body, after death, he will reappear in the company of well-to-do nobles. Why is that? Because he observes conduct that is in accordance with the teachings, righteous conduct. If householders, one who observes conduct in accordance with the teachings, righteous conduct, should have the objective, oh, that on the dissolution of the body after death, I might reappear in the company of well-to-do Brahmins, in the company of well-to-do householders, in the company of the gods of the heaven of the four great kings, in the company of the gods of the heaven of the 33, the Yama gods, the gods of the Tusita heaven, the gods who excite in creating, the gods who wield power over others' creations, the gods of Brahma's company, the gods of radiance, the gods of limited radiance, the gods of immeasurable radiance, the gods of streaming radiance, the gods of glory, the gods of limited glory, the gods of immeasurable glory, the gods of refugent glory, the gods of great fruit, the Aviya gods, the Atapa gods, the Sudas gods, the Sudasi gods, the Akhanita gods, the gods of the base of infinite space, the gods of the base of infinite consciousness, the gods of the base of nothingness, the gods of the base of neither perception nor non-perception. It is possible that on the dissolution of the body after death, he will reappear in the company of the gods of the base of neither perception nor non-perception. Why is that? Because he observes conduct in accordance with the teachings, righteous conduct. If householders, one who observes conduct in accordance with the teachings, righteous conduct, should have the objective, oh, that by realizing for myself with direct knowledge experience, I might here and now enter upon and reside in liberation of mind and liberation by wisdom that are taintless with the destruction of the taints. It is possible that by realizing for himself with direct knowledge, he will here and now enter upon and reside in liberation of mind and liberation by wisdom that are taintless with the destruction of the taints. Why is that? because he observes conduct in accordance with the teachings, righteous conduct. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So I have a few things to share here in relationship to this teaching. First of all, as you saw the Buddhist talking about what leads to rebirth in hell 
and rebirth in this heavenly world. And he's referring to conduct in accordance with the teachings. Well, what is the teachings? The teachings are explaining the natural law of gamma. So what he's really talking about is somebody who understands the teachings and practices in such a way that their moral conduct is based on the natural law of gamma, then they're going to understand what is wholesome, what is unwholesome, and they're going to practice in such a way that leads to an improved rebirth versus somebody who doesn't understand the teachings or doesn't have conduct in accordance with the teachings, then that means that they don't understand the natural law of gamma. And as they practice in the world, they're going to have craving, anger, and ignorance to the unknowing of true reality, which is going to lead to rebirth and an unhappy destination without basic necessities in perdition, even in hell, which is what the Buddha is explaining here. So it's not just that somebody's understanding his teachings. It's that his teachings are explaining the natural law of gamma, and that's what's happening to determine what our rebirth is. God isn't determining where we're reborn and how we're reborn. He's not pressing a button at the end of our life to send us to a good place or a bad place. It's all cause and effect. If this happens, then that happens. If there's this particular action, then there's this particular result. So when we practice in unwholesome ways, then there's going to be an unfortunate rebirth and an unhappy destination without basic necessities, maybe in perdition or even in hell. But when we're practicing in wholesome ways, then we can see that our condition of our mind is improving, the condition of our life is improving. There's the ability to be reborn back into the human realm, which would be ideal if there's going to be a rebirth, is to come back to the human realm, continue to work on the mind, continue to cultivate wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. Or there's the ability to be reborn back into or be reborn into the heavenly realm, from the human realm into the heavenly realm. But all of this is happening based on the natural law of gamma. It's not happening whether you believe the Buddha's teachings or whether you consider him to be a Buddha or all these kind of things. It's all based on your conduct and how you function in accordance with the natural law of gamma. And it's the Buddhist teachings that is explaining that to us. So that's the first thing that I'd like to share. The next thing is here, this part where the Buddha is talking about the three kinds of bodily conduct, the four kinds of verbal conduct, and the three kinds of mental conduct. We studied that earlier in this book, and it's also in other volumes of this book series as well. So there's this chapter on the 10 courses of unwholesome gamma, and he's explaining that if you conduct yourself in this way, it's like being deposited in hell if you choose to do these things. And then the same thing with chapter 45, he's explaining the 10 courses of wholesome gamma, which are just the opposite of the 10 courses of unwholesome gamma. And he's saying, okay, if you practice these, then it's like being deposited in heaven. But of course, the ultimate goal is to practice all the teachings so that you can completely purify the mind and get to enlightenment and no longer experience rebirth at all. 
But if you were to just practice those 10 courses of wholesome gamma, the Buddha is sharing that you could be reborn in the heavenly realm. Again, not ideal. You would like to learn much more than just the 10 courses of wholesome gamma. You'd like to learn the entire path to enlightenment, master that, completely purify the mind and get to enlightenment so that you can enjoy the rest of this life with a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy and no longer experience any rebirth whatsoever. And then the last thing that I'll share here is right here, Miranda read this very long paragraph and did an excellent job with the pronunciations about all these different gods that they believed in during the lifetime of the Buddha. And one of the common things that we hear about the Buddhist teachings in a lot of communities is that the Buddha denied the existence of God and that he never taught that there's such thing as a God. Well, there's plenty of places that the Buddha refers to God or a God. Here he's referring to multiple gods that people believed in at that time and helping them understand how they factor into this whole cycle of rebirth. So if you ever see that the Buddha's been quoted or people profess that the Buddha denied the existence of God, you can look at his teachings and you can see multiple places where he's sharing about different gods that they believed in during that lifetime. And there's even places where he talks primarily about just one God. His goal wasn't to prove or disprove the existence of God. His objective was to share teachings that lead to the liberation of mind. But because people have different thoughts and opinions about God, a Buddha is going to need to teach about God because people have different thoughts and different ideas. And depending on what they think about God, it can actually hinder them from getting to enlightenment or it can potentially help them if they understand how God fits in to the whole cycle of rebirth. So that's what a Buddha is going to do is they're going to share content and information to help people understand how God fits into the cycle of rebirth. There's not any worship that is required. There's not any bowing down to God. God isn't judging us. God isn't jealous of us. God isn't resentful. God isn't determining whether we go to a good place or a bad place. It's our decisions that lead to certain results. But here it's very interesting that you can see just repeatedly one after another, you know, he's referring to different gods at all throughout this entire paragraph. So that helps you to see the evidence that the Buddha did indeed teach about God. And you'll see some other places where it's just one God. And if you're doubting this book, you can actually go back to this reference where you can look up the original source in the Pali Canon where you can see, and you don't even have to believe this book, that you can actually go back to that reference and see that this is indeed what you're going to find in that original source text. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It looks like we don't have any questions at this time, sir. I saw Miranda's hand raise. I'm not sure if you saw that. Oh, I'm sorry. I missed that. Miranda, go ahead, please. Thank you, Rick. Um, the question that came into the mind while reading this, what if a practitioner's verbal and bodily conduct are in accordance with the teachings, but they haven't quite mastered the volitional formations, the thoughts, that mental conduct, is just the mental conduct being out of accordance with the teachings enough to cause rebirth in hell? Or would that be a bit less maybe 
animal realm or something like that, does that totally keep them from rebirth in the heavenly realms? What would that? Yeah, let me me help you with your question. First of all, the example you're using is not typical where somebody's improved their speech and their actions, but their mental conduct is still unwholesome because if our mental conduct is still unwholesome, then our speech and our actions are going to emanate from our mental conduct. So typically the way that it happens, and that's why the Buddha puts it in this order in the Eightfold Path, is that there's right intention first, which leads to right speech and right action. So that's typically the way it happens. But I understand your question is that you're like, okay, well, what if the mental conduct is improved and they improve their speech, but maybe their actions are are not wholesome or they improve their mental conduct, but their speech and their actions is unwholesome. What happens in this situation? So the Buddha is not going to give us a delineation of if you do this, you're going to hell. If you do this, you're going to heaven. There's not this like one for one exact comparison where you can kind of connect the dots, so to speak, that everybody who does this goes to hell. Everybody who does this goes to heaven because this is permanence. There's a lot of variety. There's a lot of variation. So this is why the Buddha says here, even here, where he says on the dissolution of the body, one reappears in states without basic necessities in an unhappy destination in perdition, even in hell. So it's not absolutely hell, it's potentially hell. So an unhappy destination could be an animal existence, it could be an afflicted spirit existence, it could even be a human existence, but maybe in a state of famine or poverty or maybe deformity, a birth defect, maybe in a family that is unwholesome and treats us unkind and impolite. So this unhappy destination can be all of those things, right? So he's not ever really saying exactly You know, if you kill somebody, this is what's going to happen. If you do this, this is what's going to happen. Because it's not based on the totality of your life. And then somebody looks back at your life and judges whether you go to a good place or a bad place. It's based on the condition of the mind at the time of death. So if we are working in the direction of these teachings and we've cleaned up our mental conduct, but our speech and our actions are still unwholesome, then there's going to be certain gamma that's generated as part of that. And we could potentially be reborn in hell. We could be potentially reborn in animal realm, the afflicted spirit realm, or even the human realm. We could potentially come back to the human realm having cleaned up our mental conduct, but our speech and our actions are still not quite purified. We could still potentially come back to the human realm, but still be in this unhappy destination of a human birth that is kind of unfavorable. Yes, I understand. Okay, thank you, sir. You're welcome. Other questions? I don't see any more questions at this time, sir. All right. So we'll move to the next chapter, which is 67. Yes, yes, sir. Chapter 67, why is one gift not of great fruit? and benefit while the other is. Venerable sir, why is it that one gift is not of great fruit and benefit while the other is? 
Here, Sariputta, someone gives a gift with expectations, with a bound mind, looking for rewards. He gives a gift thinking, having passed away, I will make use of this. He gives that gift to an aesthetic or a Brahmin, food and drink, clothing and vehicles, garlands, scents and ointments, bedding, dwellings and lighting. Having given such a gift with the breakup of the body after death, his reborn in companionship with the heavenly kings ruled by the four great kings, the heavenly beings ruled by the four great kings. Having exhausted that column, psychic potency, glory and authority, he comes back and returns to this state of being. But, Sariputta, someone does not give a gift with expectations, with a bound of minds looking for rewards. He does not give a gift thinking, having passed away, I will make use of this. Rather, he gives a gift thinking, giving is good. He gives that gift to an aesthetic or a Brahmin, food and drink, clothing and vehicles, garlands, scents and ointments, bedding, dwellings and lighting. Having given such a gift with the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in companionship with the Tavatimsa, heavenly beings. Having exhausted that comma, psychic potency, glory, and authority, he comes back and returns to this state of being. He does not give a gift thinking giving is good, but rather he gives a gift thinking giving was practiced before by my father and forefathers. I should not abandon this ancient family custom. He gives that gift to an aesthetic or a Brahmin, food and drink, clothing and vehicles, garlands, scents and ointments, beddings, dwellings, and lighting. Having given such a gift with the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in companionship with the Yama heavenly beings. Having exhausted uh, that comma, psychic potency, glory, and authority, he comes back and returns to this state of being. He does not give a gift. I'm mm. thinking giving was practiced before by my father and forefathers. I should not abandon this ancient family custom, but rather he gives a gift thinking, I cook. These people do not cook. It isn't right that I who cook should not give to those who do not cook. He gives that gift to an aesthetic or a Brahmin, food and drink, clothing and vehicles, garlands, scents, and ointments, bedding, dwellings, and lighting. Having given such a gift with the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in companionship with the Tusita heavenly beings. Having exhausted that comma, psychic potency, glory, and authority, he comes back and returns to this state of being. He does not give a gift thinking, I cook, these people do not cook. It isn't right that I who cook should not give to those who do not cook, but rather he gives a gift thinking just as he sees of, just as he sees of the elders, that is, Ataka, Vamaka, Vama Heavenly Being, Vesamita, Yamatagi, Angirasa, Bharadvaja, Vasateta, Teta, Kasapa, and Bagu, held those great sacrifices, so I will share a gift. He gives that gift to an aesthetic or a Brahmin, food and drink, clothing and vehicles, garlands, scents and ointments, bedding, dwellings and lighting. Having given such a gift with the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings who, ex who excite in creation. 
having exhausted that comma, psychic potency, glory, and authority, he comes back and returns to the sated being. He does not give a gift thinking, just as he sees of the elders, that is, Ataka Dubagu, held those great sacrifices, so I will share a gift, but rather, he gives a gift thinking, when I am giving a gift, my mind becomes tranquil and calm, energy and joy arise. He gives that gift to an aesthetic or a Brahmin, food and drink, clothing and vehicles, garlands and scents and ointments, bedding, dwellings and lighting. Having given such a gift with the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings who control what is created by others. Having exhausted that comma, psychic potency, glory, and authority, he becomes back and returns to this state of being. He does not give a gift thinking, when I am giving a gift, my mind becomes tranquil or calm and energy and joy arise, but rather he gives a gift thinking it's an enhancement of the mind, an accessory of the mind. He gives that gift to an aesthetic or a Brahmin, food and drink, clothing and vehicles, garlands, scents and ointments, beddings, dwellings and lighting. Having given such a gift with the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings of Brahmas or God's company. Having exhausted that kama, psychic potency, glory and authority, he does not come back and return to the state of being. This Saraputta is the reason why a gift given by someone here is not of great fruit and benefit. And this is the reason why a gift given by someone here is of great fruit and benefit. All right. Thank you, Rick. So there's an entire book devoted to generosity and giving of gifts and how to do that, why that's important, and all different aspects of that. It's volume 13 that we're going to be exploring at the end of this program. It's the very last book. So here, this is a chapter that you'll find in that book as well. But here, the Buddha is helping you to understand a bit about what leads to rebirth into the heavenly realm as it relates to gift giving. And the important thing to understand is that giving gifts without expectations is what you would like to cultivate. That's what the Buddha talks about when he talks about giving gifts to others, is he talks about giving it without any expectations of anything in return. He also talks about when you make an offering to aesthetics, that you do it with a calm mind and that you do it with joy. So he says there should be joy before giving. While you're giving, the mind should be calm. And then after giving, your mind should still be joyful. Because you could potentially have remorse, right? Like, oh, I gave too much, or oh, I didn't give enough. Or as you're giving the gift, the mind could be kind of shaken up and unstable. If you kind of admire this person and you're giving this aesthetic a gift, or maybe they've taught you so much, you might be a bit shaken up rather than just being calm and thoughtful as you offer the gift. So the way that the Buddha teaches is no expectations when you give a gift. You're just giving a gift and an offering, and you trust that that offering, that person's going to use it in a wholesome way that's going to be beneficial for whatever it is that they need to use those funds for. And it's important that you do it down here. The Buddha gets to more and more versions of what leads to benefit. Is Down here, he talks about a tranquil mind, having energy and joy as part of giving the gift. But ultimately, what he talks about here 
is that the best way to give a gift is that to understand that it's an enhancement of the mind, an accessory of the mind. This is that way of practice that we talked about in the group learning program, where what a practitioner is doing on a daily, ongoing, consistent basis is they're practicing generosity, they're practicing moral conduct, and they're practicing meditation. And you understand as you are progressing to enlightenment that it's generosity that's helping to free the mind of craving, desire, attachment. It's helping to free the mind of any selfishness. And this allows the mind to get closer and closer to enlightenment because you have no expectation of anything in return. And what the practice of generosity is doing is it's enhancing the mind. It's an accessory of the mind. The mind's becoming more and more joyful because you're letting go of craving, desire, attachment. The mind's becoming more calm because you're letting go of craving, desire, attachment. You're arising this energy. All of these, all three of these are actually part of the seven factors of enlightenment. So you're arising these qualities of a calm mind, of the enlightenment factor of energy and this joy, understanding that the practice of generosity is enhancing the mind and it's helping you get closer and closer to enlightenment without any expectations of anything in return. That's what's actually going to help you to practice generosity in a way that it does enhance the mind. If there's expectations when you're giving a gift, then there's still craving desire attachment there. If the mind isn't calm, if there's no energy, if there's no joy when you're giving a gift, then there's still craving, desire, attachment there. So when you can fully let go and you can give a gift, when the mind's calm, you can have this energy, you can have this joy, understanding that there's no expectations in this gift that you're giving, this is what's going to enhance the mind. And it's going to be of great fruit and benefit to you while you're here in this realm. And then should you need to be reborn, having cultivated this generosity, the Buddha talks about rebirth in the heavenly realm. But again, that's not actually favorable. That's not what you're interested in. You should be interested in experiencing enlightenment here. So the Buddha is describing that here, that this is why a gift given by someone here is of great fruit and benefit. Because if you do give gifts without expectations, with a calm, energetic, joyful mind, understanding that it's an enhancement of your life practice, it's an enhancement of the mind, that's what's going to lead to the benefit here in this human realm and helping you get closer and closer to enlightenment. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Miranda has a question, sir. Yes, sir. I was thinking... It's understood that giving a gift with a calm, tranquil mind without any expectation of anything in return is the best. But when a practitioner is working on cutting off craving, desire, attachment for certain things, is it best for them then to minimize the attachment to an item before possibly giving it away as an act of generosity and to fully cut off that attachment? Or should they, not all of the time, but most of the time, if they notice they have an attachment for a certain thing, give that item away if they have an interest to, even though the mind might be 
a bit shaken up still about giving that away, what would be the best course of action there, sir? Yeah, if you do choose to give something away, this is a sure way to let go of the crave and desire attachment because you're putting the mind in a situation where it has to let go. So one of the things that I do with like Bailan is in the past when he was younger and he had a lot of different toys like trucks and matchbox cars and stuff like this, I would have him give away his toys before I would ever buy him new ones. And this is a way to that if he is attached, that he has to let go of them. Here in Thailand, people give away their clothes a lot or give away their shoes or even some people go and sign papers to donate their body to science and things like this as a way of of letting go uh, and no longer holding on to even the physical body. So it would be helpful for the mind if you're able to work on letting go of attachment before you give something away. But one of the surefire ways to make sure that the mind is letting go of attachment is to give something away. But that's not to say that you can just give away your car, for example. You might need that for transportation. So there's things that you can do to let go of attachment to a car, for example. You could let a friend that you trust or a parent or somebody like that drive it. You can maybe not wash it as much and just kind of be comfortable with it being dirty and not so clean. Uh, If somebody happens to scratch your car, you know, be understanding of that and just accept it and go get it fixed if you need to get it fixed and things like this. So there's ways for us to train the mind to let go of material possessions, but there's certain things that it might just be easier for you to give it away as a gift to somebody. Okay, so it's more almost more of a case by case thing. Yeah, um, yes. Yeah, you have to look at all these things and when you learn how the mind functions with these different attachments, you can kind of employ whatever you need. Like at one time, of course, my wife and myself, we were attached to our son and, you know, our son observing that, you know, we had him stay with other people for a while. You know, he would go off and stay for three or four days with some friend and he would go stay with his grandparents for a while. And this allowed us to just let go and then you know at one time he wasn't allowed to play in the village by himself right like we had to be with him and then we got to a point where it was like all right just let him go play you know he'll he'll sort it out you know we played with no problem you know i remember going out at 8 a.m in the morning and i didn't come back until dark and my mom you know didn't know anything about where i was and we were tromping around in the woods so you know we just let him go and this is what you have to do in the mind in a you know structured way that you know that the child's not going to necessarily get hurt or you know significantly impacted or kidnapped off the street or something like this but in certain environments like here in thailand you know we live in a in a village where you know everybody's friendly and there's people around that are that are watching we felt fine just letting him go and this can help the mind and then when you see how the mind does that in a situation with a child or you know if you have certain clothes that you're attached to you can give those away perhaps but you're not going to give your child away right or you're not going to give your car away or something like this so different things there's different ways and that's where you reach out to your teacher if you observe that you're attached to your car or your clothes or your child or something like this you can reach out to your teacher and say hey i'm working on this attachment with this you know do you have some suggestions of things i can do to help let that go and then a teacher if they're you know pretty far along on the path they should be able to have 
a lot of different examples of how to help you let go of those various things. Yes, thank you. You're welcome. And one thing I'd like to add, since we're talking about letting go of attachments is, you know, letting go of attachments doesn't always include eliminating something from your life, like, like, a, like a mobile phone, right? Like we need to train the mind to eliminate the attachment to the mobile phone, but it doesn't mean that you're never going to have a mobile phone, right? Like I've shared example before how I've left my mobile phone at home multiple times intentionally to train the mind to not be attached to the mobile phone and be able to go outside without the mobile phone. So certain things you might just give away and choose to no longer have, but then there's certain things that you're going to need to have in your life in order to function and sustain your life. And there's ways to eliminate the attachment while you still have the possession or eliminate the attachment while you still have the relationship. So that's where you would like to look at those kind of things and determine what makes sense for you. Is it better for me to let this go and just completely get this out of my life because I don't need it anymore? I don't use it. Or is it something that is a necessity for my life and I'm going to need it, but I still need to eliminate the attachment to it. And then there's skillful ways for you to be able to do that. Yes, sir. Thank you. You're welcome. It looks like we have no more questions at this time, sir. Okay, so we'll move to the next chapter, which is chapter 68. Okay, and Miranda will read chapter 68 for us. Thank you, Rick. Having fulfilled and not having fulfilled one's duty towards the ascetics, ordained practitioners. Monks, last night, When the night had advanced, a number of heavenly beings of stunning beauty, illuminating the entire Jadas grove, approached me, paid homage, respect to me, and stood to one side. Those heavenly beings then said, In the past, venerable sir, when we were human beings, monks approached our homes. We rose up for them, but did not pay homage to them. Not having fulfilled our duty, full of regret and remorse, we were reborn in an inferior class of heavenly beings. Some other heavenly beings approached me and said, in the past, venerable sir, when we were human beings, monks approached our homes. We rose up for them and paid homage to them, but we did not offer them seats. Not having fulfilled our duty, full of regret and remorse, we were reborn in an inferior class of heavenly beings. Some other heavenly beings approached me and said, In the past, venerable sir, when we were human beings, monks approached our homes. We rose up for them, paid homage to them, and offered them seats, but we did not share things with them to the best of our ability and capacity. We shared things with them to the best of our ability and capacity, but we did not sit close by and listen to the teachings. We sat close by to listen to the teachings, but we did not listen to it with eager ears. We listened to it with eager ears, but having heard it, we did not retain the teachings in mind. Having heard it, we retained the teachings in mind, but we did not examine the meaning of the teachings that had been retained in the mind. We examined the meaning of the teachings that had been retained in mind, but we did not understand the meaning of the teachings and then practice in accordance with the teaching. Not having fulfilled our duty, full of regret and remorse, we were reborn in an inferior class of heavenly beings. Some other heavenly beings approached me and said, in the past, venerable sir, when we were human beings, monks approached our homes. 
We rose up for them, paid homage to them, offered them seats, and shared things with them to the best of our ability and capacity. We sat close by to listen to the teachings and listened to it with eager ears. Having heard it, we retained the teachings in mind. We examined the meaning of the teachings that had been retained in mind, and we understood the meaning of the teachings and then practiced in accordance with the teachings. Having fulfilled our duty, free of regret and remorse, we were reborn in a superior class of heavenly beings. These are the feet of trees, monks. These are empty huts. Meditate, monks. Do not be complacent. Do not have cause to regret it later like those prior heavenly beings. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So a few things to discuss here. When we talk about the heavenly realm, we tend to just think about heavenly beings in the heavenly realm. But during the lifetime of the Buddha, he taught that there was different kind of beings within the various heavenly realms, that there was, you know, these inferior uh, heavenly beings and superior heavenly beings. And he actually talked about many different types of heavenly beings. So here he's talking about giving gifts to uh, ordained practitioners and how we, you know, respect ordained practitioners, how we offer them different things and how by performing our responsibility to, you know, be in the company of aesthetics and people who can teach us. And then by being respectful when we're in their company and offering them seats and listening to the teachings and growing, it actually helps us to improve our rebirth because by learning the wholesome teachings and practicing the wholesome teachings, it's going to lead to your potential enlightenment in this life. But if it doesn't lead to enlightenment, there's the potential that you can be reborn into the heavenly realm, even without being in that third stage of enlightenment, which is a non-returner. There's ways for human beings to be reborn into the heavenly realm, even without that. And those beings that are going from human into heavenly realm, they're not going to attain enlightenment for sure, like a non-returner, but they do have the opportunity to attain enlightenment in the heavenly realm. So beings in the heavenly realm, there's beings there that are non-returners that are definitely going to attain enlightenment there. But there's also a lot of other heavenly beings too, who aren't going to necessarily attain enlightenment are going to be reborn back into one of the other realms. So here, the Buddha is explaining how to ensure that, you know, if there is potentially rebirth in the heavenly realm, how to ensure you get to that superior class where there's a better opportunity for you to attain enlightenment. And he gives the details in this uh, second to last paragraph. But then he basically encourages his students, the monks, to go meditate because this is what's going to lead to improved condition of mind. In addition to practicing the Eightfold Path and all the other steps, there needs to be a consistent ongoing daily practice of meditation. The Buddha meditated three times a day. I suggest two to three times a day. This is ideal. If you can get the 30 minutes or more per session for two to three sessions per day, that's where you'll see the most progress. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Yes, sir. I was just wondering, I wanted to make sure I understood the reference to the last, in the last paragraph. He said, these are the feet of trees, monks. These are the empty huts. Is he referring to where one should meditate? Or I, I wasn't sure what he meant by that. Yeah, during his lifetime, he encouraged people to meditate at the foot of a tree or an empty hut where you're alone, essentially. Because once you develop the teachings to a certain point, 
he would encourage his monks to go out into the forest and essentially live by themselves and learn to be alone. This is the way to ensure that the mind isn't attached to anything. If you can live alone in the forest, particularly during the lifetime of the Buddha, because there were lots of animals and poisonous animals and fierce animals, you know, tigers and lions and things like this that are roaming around in the jungle. And if you can exist in the forest alone and not have fear in your meditating and you're secluded, then this is really, really good for the mind. So nowadays there is a practice of ordained practitioners going out into the forest on their own, but more wisely, we can actually get to the point where we don't have a free fear of being alone because there are people who go out into the forest and actually get attacked by elephants, by tigers, by predators and things like this. There's cases of this that you can see in on the internet if you search like monk forest death or monk jungle, you know, meditation death, things like this, where people have gone out into a very wild sections of the jungle and they've been attacked by wild animals for being out in that area alone. So it's wise to spend time alone because if you're always with other people, whether it's the internet or talking on the phone or watching TV, you're always filling your mind up with some kind of stimulus and you're not able to just sit and do nothing or go out and take yourself to dinner alone in a, in a, in a restaurant or go out to the mall alone. If you're not comfortable doing these things alone and you're always filling your mind up with some kind of stimulus, then you can't really listen to the internal voice that's there. You can't fully develop mindfulness and awareness of mind because you're always bombarding the mind with some type of stimulus. So during the lifetime of the Buddha, he encouraged people to go out on their own in the secluded forest, but you can actually do something similar to this by going out on your own, maybe camping or going to the mall for several hours or going out to eat by yourself or staying at home or going on a retreat by yourself. There's different ways that you can ensure that you're doing this. But this is what he suggested at the time of his life is to go out and do some seclusion and be alone. And I would encourage that as well. But understanding that nowadays, you know, you, you need to kind of account for various things that you're doing in life and certain responsibilities that you have and take advantage of, you know, three, four, five, six hours of being able to go off maybe from your family and go to the mall by yourself or go out to eat by yourself and things like this. Put the mind in environments where it's not typically alone and maybe it doesn't like to be alone in that situation, but train the mind to be comfortable in that situation. When I was going to college, it was very popular to go to the dining hall and eat with a lot of friends. And the more friends you ate with, you know, it was considered to be more popular. And if you were sitting alone in the dining hall, people kind of considered you to be a loser and you didn't have any friends and things like this. So one of the things that I used to do is I used to go to the dining hall alone and I would sit somewhere by myself. And even though people would look at me strange and you know, just kind of look odd. I would just sit there and eat and train the mind to be content while eating alone and not necessarily 
conforming to this practice of being with lots of friends and that what that's what makes you a cool person if you are sitting with lots of people so you can train the mind to be alone and even going out to restaurants alone this is all very helpful when i was growing up it was considered that you were unpopular if you went to the mall by yourself and you walked around by yourself they considered you to be a loser so when i was young i used to go to the mall by myself and train the mind to walk around alone and and be completely content with that and not feel any kind of uh, feelings about personal existence view and holding on to this self-image or this self-identity that you're trying to project in the world based on what other people's perceptions are so that yes rick that's what he's referring to is the location of where to meditate thank you sir there don't appear to be any more questions at this time all right so we'll go to chapter 69. i will read the first part and about halfway through i'll hand the mantle over to miranda reappearance in accordance with one's objectives Monks, I shall teach you reappearance in accordance with one's objectives. Listen and attend closely to what I shall say. Here, monks, a monk possesses confidence, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom. He thinks, oh, that on the dissolution of the body after death, I might reappear in the company of well-to-do nobles. Oh, that on the dissolution of the body after death, I might reappear in the company of well-to-do Brahmins. Oh, that on the dissolution of the body after death, I might reappear in the company of well-to-do householders. He fixes his mind on that, determined upon it, develops it. These objectives and this residing of his, thus developed and cultivated, lead to his reappearance there. This, monks, is the path, the way that leads to reappearance there. Again, a monk possesses confidence, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom. He hears that the gods of the heaven of the four great kings are long-lived, beautiful, and enjoy great happiness. He thinks, oh, that on the dissolution of the body after death, I might reappear in the company of the gods of the heaven of the four great kings. He fixes his mind on that, determined upon it, develops it. These objectives and this residing of his, thus developed and cultivated, lead to his reappearance there. This, monks, is the path, the way that leads to reappearance there. Again, a monk possesses confidence, virtue, or moral conduct, learning, generosity, and wisdom. He hears that the gods of the heaven of the 33, the Yama gods, the gods of the Dusita heaven, the gods who excite in creating, the gods who wield power over others' creations are long-lived, beautiful, and enjoy great happiness. He thinks, oh, that on the dissolution of the body after death, I might reappear in the company of the gods who wield power over others' creations. He fixes his mind on that, determined upon it, develops it. These objectives and his, this residing of his, thus developed and cultivated, lead to his reappearance there. This monks is the path, the way that leads to reappearance there. Again, a monk possesses confidence, virtue, moral conduct, learning, generosity, and wisdom. He hears that the Brahma of a thousand is a long-lived, beautiful, and enjoys great happiness. Now the Brahma of a thousand 
resides determined on permeating a world system of a thousand worlds, and he resides determined on permeating the beings that have reappeared there. Just as a man with good sight might take a gall, gall nut, which is a plant growth that resembles a nut, in his hand and review it. So the Brahma of a thousand resides determined on permeating a world system of a thousand worlds, and he resides determined on permeating the beings that have reappeared there. The monk thinks, oh, that on the dissolution of the body, he fixes his mind on that, determined upon it, develops it, these objectives and this residing of this of his, thus developed and cultivated, lead to the reappearance there. This monks is the path, the way that leads to reappearance there. Again, a monk possesses confidence, virtue, moral conduct, learning, gener learning, generosity, and wisdom. He hears that the Brahma of two thousand, the Brahma of three thousand, the Brahma of four thousand, the Brahma of five thousand is long-lived, beautiful, and enjoys great happiness. Now the Brahma of 5,000 resides determined on permeating a world system of 5,000 worlds, and he resides determined on permeating the being's gallnuts in his hand and review them. So the Brahma of 5,000 resides determined on permeating a world system of 5,000 worlds, and he resides determined on permeating the beings that have reappeared there. The monk thinks, Oh, that on the dissolution of the body after death, I might appear in the company of the Brahma of 5,000. He fixes his mind on that, determined upon it, develops it. These objectives and this residing of his, thus developed and cultivated, lead to his reappearance there. This monks is the path, the way that leads to reappearance there. And I will pass it on to Miranda. Again, a monk possesses confidence, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom. He hears that the Brahma of 10,000 is long-lived, beautiful, and enjoys great happiness. Now the Brahma of 10,000 resides determined on permeating a world system of 10,000 worlds, and he resides determined on permeating the beings that have reappeared there. Just as a fine barrel gem, mineral composed of beryllium aluminum cyclosilicate, rare stone, of purest water, eight-faceted, well-cut, lying on a red brocade, glows, radiates, and shines, so the Brahma of 10,000 resides determined on permeating a world system of 10,000 worlds, and he resides determined on permeating the beings that have reappeared there. The monk thinks, oh, that on the dissolution of the body after death, I might reappear in the company of the Brahma of 10,000. He fixes his mind on that, determined upon it, develops it. These objectives and this residing of his, thus developed and cultivated, lead to his reappearance there. This monks is the path, the way that leads to reappearance there. Again, a monk possesses confidence, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom. He hears that the Brahma of 100,000 is long-lived, beautiful, and enjoys great happiness. Now the Brahma of 100,000 resides determined on permeating a world system of 100,000 worlds, and he resides determined on permeating the beings that have reappeared there. Just as an ornament of finest gold, very skillfully created in the furnace by a clever goldsmith, lying on red brocade, glows, radiates, and shines, 
So the Brahma of a hundred thousand resides determined on permeating a world system of a hundred thousand worlds. And as he resides, determined on permeating the beings that have reappeared there, the monk thinks, oh, that on the dissolution of the body after death, I might reappear in the company of the Brahma of a hundred thousand. He fixes his mind on that, determined upon it, develops it. These objectives and this residing of his, thus developed and cultivated, lead to his reappearance there. This monks is the path, the way that leads to reappearance there. Again, a monk possesses confidence, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom. He hears that the gods of radiance, the gods of limited radiance, the gods of immeasurable radiance, the gods of streaming radiance, the gods of glory, the gods of limited glory, the gods of immeasurable glory, the gods of refulgent glory, the gods of great fruit, the Aviha gods, the Atapa gods, the Sudasa gods, the Sudasi gods, the Akhanita gods are long lived, beautiful, and enjoy great happiness. He thinks, oh, that on the dissolution of the body after death, I might reappear in the company of the Akhanita gods. He fixes his mind on that, determined upon it, develops it. These objectives and this residing of his, thus developed and cultivated, lead to his reappearance there. This monks is the path, the way that leads to reappearance there. Again, a monk possesses confidence, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom. He hears that the gods of the base of infinite space, the gods of the base of infinite consciousness, the gods of the base of nothingness, the gods of the base of neither perception nor non-perception are long lived, long enduring, and enjoy great happiness. He thinks, oh, that on the dissolution of the body after death, I might reappear in the company of the gods of the base of neither perception nor non-perception. He fixes his mind on that, determined upon it, develops it. These objectives and this residing of his, thus developed and cultivated, lead to his reappearance there. This monks is the path, the way that leads to reappearance there. Again, a monk possesses confidence, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom. He thinks, oh, that by realizing for myself with direct knowledge, I might here and now enter upon and reside in the liberation of mind and liberation by wisdom that are taintless with, this, with the destruction of the taints. And by realizing for himself with direct knowledge, he here and now enters upon and resides in the liberation of mind and liberation by wisdom that are taintless with the destruction of the taints. Monks, this monk does not reappear anywhere at all. All right. Thank you, Miranda. And that is the goal, to not reappear anywhere at all. Right. So all of these other paragraphs that the Buddha is explaining, what you can really glean from something like this is these attributes that he's talking about. The confidence, the virtue or moral conduct, the learning, generosity, and wisdom. This is what he's saying leads to rebirth in the heavenly realm. But this is also what leads to enlightenment as well.
So when he talks about confidence, he's talking about confidence in him, that he's the fully perfectly enlightened Buddha, confidence in his teachings, and confidence in the community. And then this is helping you to eliminate any kind of doubt about the teachings, that if you're learning and examining and investigating the teachings, you're reflecting on them and you're practicing, your confidence is going to greatly increase because you're going to see the condition of the mind and the condition of your life is gradually improving. So you'll have no doubt that he was, in fact, a fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha, that his teachings are absolutely leading you to an improved state of mind and an improved life. And this community that you're part of is helping you and supporting you in that goal. So cultivating confidence is very important. The virtue or moral conduct, this is what you're cultivating as part of the full path, that you're learning right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Through learning and practicing those and ensuring that you're not causing harm through your speech, your actions, and your livelihood, you'll see that your life and the condition of your mind will improve because you won't have any worries that anything harmful is coming back to you because you know you're only doing wholesome things in the world. This learning is all about learning the teachings so that you're learning, reflecting, and then of course practicing through your conduct. Practicing generosity, which we talked a little bit about in this class and we've talked about in other classes in the group learning program, and cultivating wisdom. These are the attributes that are leading to rebirth in the heavenly realm, but they're also attributes that lead to enlightenment. So you can glean from a discourse like this of, okay, I'm interested in building this confidence. I'm interested in cultivating wholesome moral conduct. I would like to continue to learn, investigate the teachings, don't believe them, but investigate them and independently verify them myself, continue to practice generosity and find ways that you can do that through opening the door for people, through helping people pick things up, through being polite, kind, friendly, and respectful in all situations, sharing your time, effort, energy, and resources, and cultivating this wisdom. This is what's gonna lead to an improved condition of mind in a improved life. But the ultimate goal is all the way down here at the very bottom where he says, okay, you know, having cultivated these things that he talked about previously and realizing the liberation of mind through having this direct knowledge or direct experience where you're learning, reflecting, and practicing, you get this direct knowledge or this experience of knowing what is true and what is false so that when you independently verify the teachings, you have direct knowledge or experience. And then that leads to more and more liberation of mind because you're liberating it by wisdom. You're independently verifying the teachings. You're not believing the teachings, but you're independently verifying them and you have direct knowledge that you know for a fact that it's craving, desire, attachment that leads to discontentedness, that when you eliminate that, it eliminates discontentedness so forth and so on, all the different teachings, you're gaining this wisdom. You understand that loving kindness is what eliminates anger, hatred, and ill will. You learn all these different teachings as part of this path, and eventually you get to the point where you've eliminated the 10 fetters. You have this taintless liberation where you've destroyed the taints or you destroy the 10 fetters. They no longer exist in the mind. You've eliminated all pollution of mind. And having done that, then you enter and reside in liberation of mind 
that you have this taintless mind, you have this pure mind. And when you've attained enlightenment, that's what you will experience where the mind is completely purified and no longer has any pollutions whatsoever. That's the taintless destruction. And then that particular being does not reappear anywhere at all. And that's the ultimate goal. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It doesn't look like we have any questions at the moment, sir. All right. So this is our last chapter for the day, chapter 70. Okay. Um, chapter 70, eight kinds of rebirth on account of giving. Monks, there are these eight kinds of rebirth on account of giving. What eight? Here, someone gives a gift of to an ascetic or a Brahmin, food and drink, clothing and vehicles, garlands, scents and ointments, bedding, dwellings and lighting. Whatever he gives, he expects something in return. He sees affluent katiyas, affluent brahmins, or affluent householders enjoying themselves furnished and endowed with the five objects of sensual pleasure. It occurs to him, oh, with the breakup of the body after death, may I be reborn in companionship with affluent katiyas, affluent brahmins, or affluent householders. He sets his mind on this, fixes his mind on this, and develops this state of mind. The objective of his, determined on what is inferior, not developed higher, leads to rebirth there. With the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in companionship with affluent katyas, affluent brahmins, or affluent householders. And that that is for one who is virtuous, practices moral conduct. I say, not for one who is immoral. The heart's objective of one who is virtuous succeeds because of his purity. Secondly, someone else gives a gift to an aesthetic or a Brahmin, food and drink and lighting. Whatever he gives, he expects something in return. He has heard the heavenly beings ruled by the four great kings are long lived of the body after death. May I be reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings ruled by the four great kings. He sets his mind on this, fixes his mind on this, and develops the state of mind. That objective of his, Determine on what is inferior, not developed higher, leads to rebirth there. With the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings ruled by the four great kings. And that is for one who is virtuous. I say, not for one who is immoral. The heart's objective of one who is virtuous succeeds because of its purity. Three, someone else gives a gift to an aesthetic or a brahmin food and drink and lighting whatever he gives he expects something in return he has heard four the tabatimsa heavenly beings five the yama heavenly beings the Dusita heavenly beings six the heavenly beings who excite in creation seven the heavenly beings who control what is created by others are long-lived beautiful and abound in happiness it occurs to him Oh, with the breakup of the body after death, may I be reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings who control what is created by others. He sets his mind on this, fixes his mind on this, and develops the state of mind. That objective of his, determined on what is inferior, not developed higher, leads to rebirth there. With the breakup of the body after death, 
He is a born in companionship with the heavenly beings who control what is created by others. And that is for and that is for the one who is virtuous, I say, not for one who is immoral. The heart's objective of one who is virtuous succeeds because of his purity. And finally, or eight, someone else gives a gift to an ascetic or Brahmin, food and drink and lighting. Whatever he gives, he expects something in return. He has heard, the heavenly beings of Brahma's company are long-lived, beautiful and abound in happiness. It occurs to him, oh, with the breakup of the body after death, may I be reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings of Brahma or God's company. He sets his mind on this, fixes his mind on this, and develops this state of mind. That objective of his, determined on what is inferior, not developed higher, leads to rebirth there. With the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings of God's company, and that is for one who is virtuous. I say, not for one who is immoral, for one without craving, not for one with craving. The heart's objective of one who is virtuous succeeds because of his purity. These monks are the eight kinds of rebirth on account of giving. All right. Thank you, Rick. So here the Buddha is essentially explaining someone who's giving with expectations, meaning they still have craving, desire, attachment. So there's going to be rebirth. If there's craving, desire, attachment at the time of death, then there's going to be rebirth. So if somebody's giving a gift with expectations, there's craving, desire, attachment there, there's going to be rebirth. And rebirth into the heavenly realm isn't necessarily favorable, particularly if you're not a non-returner. If you're a non-returner, okay, great. You're going to go to the heavenly realm and no longer come back. You're going to attain enlightenment from that realm. But that's not what the Buddha is describing here. He's talking about people who are being reborn from the human realm into the heavenly realm who aren't non-returners and are just getting there on account of their generosity. So the goal would be to practice generosity without any expectation of anything in return. If you give somebody a sweater and they decide to give it to somebody else, so be it. You practice generosity, you gave them that sweater. If you give somebody anything at all and they choose to do something else with it, then you shouldn't have any problem with that whatsoever. If you have an expectation that they're going to keep it and use it for themselves, then there's craving, desire, attachment there. If you give a gift and you're expecting somebody to get excited because you gave them that gift, then that means there's craving, desire, attachment there. You shouldn't have any expectation of them getting excited, of them necessarily holding on to your gift and using it. You shouldn't even have an expectation that someone's going to say thank you for the gift, even though it would be proper for that person to say thank you and give appreciation and gratitude. Don't even have the expectation that somebody's going to say thank you. If you're giving a gift, it should just be here's the gift and you're practicing generosity without any expectation, even as simple as a thank you. So if you have that expectation of a thank you, then you're not going to get that every single time because if you did, that would be permanence. Every single person who you give a gift to isn't going to necessarily say thank you. And in that situation, if your mind becomes discontent, you're causing it yourself because you have the expectation of getting a thank you and you didn't get one.
So when you give a gift, be sure there's no expectation whatsoever, not even an expectation for a thank you. And that will ensure that you are not having craving, desire, attachment as you give a gift. And you're completely comfortable with whatever happens to that gift. It doesn't matter to you. You are just performing the act of giving because you know that it's a good quality of mind to have in practicing generosity so that you eliminate all craving, desire, attachment. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? I'm not seeing any questions for this particular chapter, sir, but Max does have, Max has a, uh, some question about a previous chapter. Okay, let's go to that then. Hello, teacher. Uh, I had a couple chapters back um, talking about craving, desire, and attachment for, um, oh shoot, like, uh, I guess my question is like, if we have like a hobby or a collection or, or something that we enjoy doing, it's just a matter of uh, preventing the mind from clinging and uh, hoping that that hobby or the collection or something like that, uh, we, we want to prevent the mind from thinking that that is permanent correct? Yes. And this is probably related to motorcycles, right, Max? Yes, sir. <laughs> okay. So understanding that they're impermanent and, you know, like if, like, like you said, like a, if a car gets scratched or, you know, something like that, like basically like we can enjoy the hobby or collection or whatever, but it's just a matter of uh, preventing the mind from clinging to it. Right. So it's not the fact of whether we have a collection and that means we're automatically have craving, desire, attachment and clinging. We can collect things and enjoy having them around, but not have craving and clinging where you know that there's craving is if the mind, you know, is yearning and longing. Gosh, I got to have one more. I got to have one more. I got to have one more. Got to have one more. And that's what the mind feels that it's going to take to be fulfilled. Or if somebody broke it or scratched it, if you got angry or discontent in that situation, or you get all these pleasant feelings whenever you buy a new one or someone gives you one of these new things that's part of your collection, that's how you know there's craving, desire, attachment there. And you will need to practice in a way to eliminate that because you're setting yourself up to fail because the mind's still holding on. So it's a matter of having right mindfulness and observing the mind when you're looking to add to your collection or if something happens to your collection. Observe what's going on in the mind. Are you experiencing pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or neither painful nor pleasant as it relates to the collection? And if you are, then there's craving and clinging there. And you'll need to eliminate that so that you can collect if that's what you would like to do without having craving or clinging as part of it. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. It looks like there are no more questions at this time, sir. All right. Well, thank you all for joining the class. Thank you for those of you guys that volunteer to read. That's really helpful as we progress in the class to 
have students to read. So those of you guys that are watching on the replay or that if you're watching the live stream, if you'd ever like to come into Zoom and help out with the reading, that would be wonderful to have you in. You can actually join a little bit early if you'd like prior to the start of class. And we kind of talk and have conversations about different things and coordinate the reading. So you're always welcome to do that. So thank you for all of you guys that are, have joined for the class, whether it's live or on the replay. Thank you for your dedication and your diligence to learning and practicing these teachings. Next week, we're going to go farther into this book. We're almost halfway through the book. So we're going to be in chapters 71 through chapters 80. And there will be just about halfway through the book. So you can read those prior to class and then come to class with any questions that you might have. Tomorrow in the group learning program, we're going to be in chapter 15 of volume one. That chapter is titled True Love, Love Without Attachment. This is where you're going to learn how to have relationships that have true love, but you're practicing true love rather than craving, desire, attachment. Because in the unenlightened state, we misunderstand craving, desire, attachment as love. We think that what we're practicing is love, but in reality, we're practicing craving, desire, attachment, and it leads to all kinds of struggles and difficulties and lots of discontentedness in our relationships. So when we can practice true love, love without attachment, then we can have very fulfilling relationships. So I'm gonna teach you guys that tomorrow in the group learning program and you can read the book again prior to class or after class if you'd like that's chapter 15 of volume one and then on Wednesday we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation in our class doing a group meditation together and practicing breathing mindfulness meditation which is to eliminate craving desire attachment and arises mindfulness and concentration so thank you all for your participation. Thank you to the moderators. Thank you for Rick for being the primary moderator for the first time. You know, yay, you, you got through your first class. Good job. You've got a good trainer there. Miranda and Blossom did a very good job of, of uh, kind of setting up how to do really good quality moderation. So thank you guys for all of that. We'll see you in a future class. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.